Today's episode is brought to you by Anchorfish Printing. Hey, are you in a band? Do you run a label? Or maybe you just want to make some merch for fun. You should hit up Anchorfish Printing. They've been taking care of bands for over 15 years. I first met the owner, Michael, when my band Touche Amore started, and he was our go-to guy. You can visit what they have to offer over at anchorfishprinting.com. You can hit them up for all your merch needs, whether it's screen printing, embroidery, or maybe you just need some stickers. Mention the first ever podcast and get 10% off your order. Welcome to the first ever podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Bohm. If this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. This is episode 112, and my guest this week is singer-songwriter Dave Hawes. I gotta be totally honest with you, this is one of my favorite episodes. I, uh, I, we connected on such a, such a deep level. I really, really enjoyed this. Um, it was such a pleasure to have this conversation. It was recorded, uh, uh, quite a few weeks ago. Um, I've been prepping for tour, which I am currently on. I am recording this ahead of schedule. I'll be totally transparent because I'm currently on tour in Europe and the UK right now. Um, but I, I just couldn't wait for this episode to come out because it's just, it's, uh, it's really, really nice. Um, I want to let you know that Dave currently has a tour ahead. Uh, he has a East Coast tour starting November 8th, and it looks like it goes until November 20th. Uh, a lot of, it's mostly East Coast, a little bit of Midwest in there, so check out his dates. Um, it's in support of his new record, Blood Harmony. So yeah, support Dave. He's, he's, uh, he's really something. Um, I want to let you know that there's a bonus episode available right now. If you head on over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon, where Dave answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. You can access that plus all the past bonus episodes and all sorts of other stuff, including bonus radio hours, a lot of stuff. I'm telling you, uh, for as little as three bucks a month. Once again, that is patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. And also, if you would not mind subscribing to the show on Spotify or Apple or wherever it is that you're listening to this, that helps the show. Obviously, leaving a positive rating and review, um, everyone asks you to do it, and there's a reason, because it helps. And it's, uh, it's just a really nice thing to see. Uh, but that's it. That's it for me. Um, I hope you're doing well out there. And uh, here we go. This is my conversation with Dave Hawes. What's up, Dave? It's so nice to see you. I feel like it's been it's been a minute. How are you? It's been a long time, man. I, there was a uh, one point in like festival season where <laughs> yes. a Dave Haas show and a Touche Amore show were back to back or something. And I might I think that might be the last time I saw your actual human form instead of just like you know your picture on the internet. <laughs> I, w- I want to say it's the same thing. Yeah, it was. Uh... Uh, just directly in one of those European festival seasons where 
it always kind of feels like a weird version of summer camp where, yeah, you know, you're like, oh, wait, so who's on this one today? It's like I, I often yeah. joke that I call it summer vacation with Fat Mike because no matter what, he's going to be there. Whether whatever iteration iteration of whatever music he's playing, he, right. I can just count on him to somehow be at the festival. And I don't even know him. We've met once or twice, but like, it's just he's a fixture of the European summer festival. Yeah, I think I think um, for a while there it was Jimmy Eat World. It was like every <laughs> every third day it was oh Jimmy Eat World's playing this one, you know, and so you, you could count on an hour of incredible songs you know yeah um, i'm trying to think yeah there are those fixtures there are um you know certain people that can just always go to europe and and have a good time i mean you guys are, are one of them you know you're you probably do that circus circuit every couple of years and god um, there's there's even a point i mean obviously up until the pandemic but like it almost felt like we were doing it just about every year and it's so interesting how it's like if you it does like no one ever seems to get tired of you coming to those. And there's also like the, Oh, you do it at the beginning of summer or maybe next year you do it towards the end of summer. And it's like a whole different circuit of those things. And they, they, they all sort of feel the same in a weird way, but at the same time, it's always, I think for an American band, it's exciting because European festivals are so much more eclectic than any of the festivals in the U S do you agree with that? I would tend to agree. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's the rare times where we'll play, you know, my brother and I, or our band, you know, we sometimes tour as Dave Haas and the mermaid, which is just, just indicative that we are bringing a rock and roll band. But, um, it's sometimes where we'll play with metal band, like, you, you know, you might see Mastodon or something. Right. It, it's more eclectic on the heavier side of things from my, from my experience, but I haven't, necessarily i guess there were a couple years where we got to play like pukul pop or something like that where you'd also see i don't even know who would be who would be like the current it would be it wouldn't be that unlikely that you might see doja cat or something crazy that's, you know like later in the day <laughs> that that might be actually like like the, between the reading and leads or like the pukul pop or like yeah i, I want to even say maybe that's where we first it could pod be maybe met because i remember when we played that it was like the headline <laughs> the headliners were like uh bjork and snoop dog and bush yeah 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 okay that's where that's where it was because i believe that was the first and the last time that i've actually seen pup i think pup was on that day as well sure and or it was it was maybe lowlands i don't remember but yeah it's been a minute man i mean i don't think we did that circuit since that's the only time we've done pupil pop too and that's where we actually met the gaslight anthem the first time as well it's where i met benny the first yeah. time which is yeah, just, yeah yeah that was probably eight years ago that we did poogle pop but um but yeah i mean it's always a treat to me because i mean my big thing is always doing something different and not not to say that festivals are different but they force you to think differently about what you're going to do with your day and you know, you might end up surprised by who you see or what music you get to experience that day. And so I'm always up for it, mostly because the Groundhog's Day of or the Groundhog Day of touring um, isn't as prevalent. You know, it, it can feel that way if you do too many of those festivals, but um, I don't think we're popular enough to do too many. <laughs> it's like we we uh, we get the ones we get, and it's fun. And then you go back to some other iteration of what you're used to. And so yeah. I, I always look forward to something different. And, totally, and that's, uh, totally. That's the beauty of it for me. 
Yeah, I don't think we've ever played one of those not in the direct sunlight. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> we're, like, we're, not, we're never playing too late on those things. We're like, you catch us at, catch us at uh, 1.30 between, you know, yeah, like a, a metal band and whatever else, or like a, yeah. a, a German band that maybe I'm unfamiliar with. But uh, yeah, it's yeah, always... Yeah, it's, it's true, it's always, man. I'm, it's funny, though, because I have this really distinct memory as a as a kid it was actually the day my brother tim was born i was i was at 15 years old and i was at lollapalooza 93 and uh the sun was setting and alice in chains went on which i think i that memory is so indelibly fixed in my head and when i went home and realized my brother was born just at the same time as alice in chains took the stage i always think of the prime spot in a festival as when the sun goes down. So that's my goal. It's not to play when it's dark, because that's like when yeah. Pearl Jam would play or something. But when if you can play when the sun is setting, then then we know we've hit like another uh, rung of, of music industry <laughs> success or something. That's a know. really, really great point, because uh, especially if it's in the summer, specifically if it's in the summer, that sun setting uh, set time is special mm-hmm. for a plethora of reasons, but I think the most special reason is it's giving everybody in the audience comfort because yes, all of a sudden there's a, a there could be a breeze. It's <laughs> they're no longer worried about their head, their forehead being sunburned. It's just right. It's just a calm. And uh, that's right. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely right. I think you're absolutely there's something right. Something special about that slot, and uh, somewhere, someday, I'm gonna play it. <laughs> Um, so you are from Philly originally, right? You're born, are you Philly born and raised? Yeah, Philly born and raised. And, uh, I only lived there, um, until about, let's see, it was 2013. I moved here to Santa Barbara. I didn't even really know what that was. I, I kind of only knew the, the typical, um, tour stops in California. And so I happened to meet my wife on an off day of a tour and, um, here in Santa Barbara, and it's beautiful. It's part of the Central Coast. It's kind of the end of the Central I, Coast. And I had no idea that's where you were. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I've sort of uh, quietly... I mean, I still kind of identify... I mean, our, our our operations base is Philly, and my brother's there, and, and the band was kind of around there, and now we're sort of spread out everywhere. But um, I just still identify musically and culturally with the east coast and and i just feel like santa barbara is my home where i cannot play you know like people go oh do you play in town i go well not if i can help it i mean just because it's it's such a quiet kind of vacation place um for for many and so for us it's just like our our little um you know quiet space to live and and in the last couple years like my wife had our twin boys three and a half years ago so it's been even more of that kind of quiet non-music business related thing like i don't really even know people in the music industry in town like i'm sure there are i mean there's like really fancy people and stuff that live here that are yeah highly successful but i don't really know i know just a couple people a couple punks a couple um you know songwriters and stuff but but i'm not really in the mix here Almost intentionally, I guess. I mean, I'm sure it's a super nice escape. It's a beautiful town. Um, it's. I also yeah. like... Th- there's this fascinating thing about Santa Barbara where you're exactly as you're describing it, it's calm. It's like very... Yeah. You know, you get the, 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 the beaches aren't super crowded. They're crowded, but they're not super crowded. It's like touristy mm-hmm. in that sort of way. Maybe you get some of those people. 
but it's fascinating yeah. because if you drive maybe 15 minutes further, you get Isla Vista. And yeah. that is, uh, <laughs> that's, one that's of the, a wild party. That's town, a wild yeah. party town. Exactly. But it's like, yeah. it's wild that there is that division right there. My friends and I, cause I'm in, I'm in uh, LA. Like I, I live in Glendale. Um, right. And, uh, yeah, I mean, back when, you know, when you're 18 and you're dumb and you just want to get in the car with your friends and go eat late, uh, we used to literally all drive to Freebirds in Isla Vista. Oh, no kidding. Because it, was, it used to be open until like three in the morning. So we would just be like, let's drive 90 minutes to just go eat tacos. At, <laughs> yeah, you know, something whatever. to do. Something to do. Exactly. I, and it's a I beautiful get that, town. Though. We used to do that with the Jersey Shore. We would we would bomb out of Philly, you know, in, in the summer, late at night, three in the morning. We get a cheesesteak or something on the way and just go down there for no reason you know that's the kind of the beauty of that age is totally you know, oh yeah three hours in the car with with our pals and you know go look at the sea for a minute and turn around i mean that it's almost i mean i wish there was more of that as an adult that sort of lack of a plan you know it's right it everything now seems like it has to be planned and you know very specific but there's something there's a lot of magic that happens when you don't have anything on the calendar and you just kind of go there's all there's also that freedom of um not having expectation of comforts whereas like yeah. as an adult it's especially I'm sure I, I don't have children but I'm sure I'm sure for you there's that added thing too where you're like you don't want to just get in the car and hope that the hotel that has a that has a space available <laughs> is uh is going to be okay yeah. whereas when right. you're a kid well, that's, you're like that's it's a bed I don't care yeah, or it's the sand. We'll sleep on the beach, man. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, there's, there's that whole thing. Yeah, totally. there, that is part of it. With kids, especially little kids, um, you know, you, you got to have some some planning so that they don't, so that they at least get the um, impression that their parents have their eyes together. <laughs> <laughs> their best interests at heart, of course. Right, um, right. So when you were young, the first question I usually ask musicians is, uh, when you were young, what was the first thing that you connected with musically? But that felt like it was yours. Maybe not something that was being played in the house by your folks, but like something that you maybe discovered on your own that maybe gave well, you some sort sort of sense of identity. The big one was a band called the Hooters. They were like a pop rock act that had a couple hits on the radio. And so they were a Philly export that everyone was very, very proud of. And so the, the, that would be the big one. Um, they put out a record called Nervous Night. It was uh, some of the people who had helped to make the first Cindy Lauper record. Oh, wow. Um, and I actually ended up making two records with Eric from the Hooters years later. So it was this weird circle of like my very first um, uh, most treasured album as a, as a boy, maybe seven or eight years old. I got that record. And, um, you know, they were really successful at a time where um, you could be, I guess so successful that selling 3 million records didn't matter as much. And I think that's what they sold of their debut album or something. It was crazy. No way. Yeah. But wow. I think before that, I remember buying, going with my dad to buy my mom a present for her birthday. And I really wanted Lionel Richie's record <laughs> that had the hello song on it. You know, sure. that song, hello. Yeah. And, my dad raised his eyebrow and was like, is this for you or for her? And I remember feeling like really guilty as a kid, like, oh man, I think I'm buying my mom a gift for myself. But it really was. I really wanted that album and I loved, I think that might've been Dancing on the Ceiling. I can't remember what record that was on. That sounds but right. That would, that would be the first time like I intentionally set out 
uh, to get some music that I had heard that I really wanted. And that was really young. That was probably right around the same time as the Hooters. And well, how did you discover the Hooters? Was that, was that like a, a, a bit, you said it was a Philly export. So would that be something that was probably being played on the radio pretty, pretty often? They were, yeah, they were the, the city, the rock radio stations, um, in the city were, were very much behind them. And then there was, uh, you know, like the weekend, um, yeah, back, back then they would put like an insert for the weekend into the paper mm. and it was like a full color, like what to do this weekend that they were on the cover of that. And they looked really cool. They were all like very colorful. They each had a different primary color that they dressed in, which now you can't connect, can't imagine doing that yeah. as an adult performer. But, uh, back then as a kid, I was like, Whoa, they look so colorful and cool. And they had really long hair and, um, since I'm unfamiliar, and what are they reminiscent of? Like, is it like, like, is there anything you can compare the, it to? It would be like Brian Adams. Oh, okay, sure. Like kind a Richard Marksy kind of sort of, yeah. Kind of, not quite that, um, not quite as um, soft rock as, as Richard Marks. More like, okay. I mean, they rocked. And okay. then they, they're really incredible musicians, especially the two main songwriters. In fact, one of the main songwriters in the Hooters wrote um, Time After Time with Cindy Lauper. And then Eric, the other songwriter that we worked with, wrote uh, One of Us for for Joan Osborne. You know, the big One of God was One of Us song. So they're incredible players. They they were, you know, they can play anything. And their next album after that, they ended up doing more of a roots thing with accordions and mandolins and acoustic guitars. And so that really made its way into my musical DNA early. Sounds like Like I was really fascinated with rock and roll with... Uh, folk instrumentation and and those two records were big for me this is a fun question do you think that change in their sound uh was easier for you to accept because of your age like you know what i'm saying where i was like maybe if you were older and you got into them and they made that change you're now sort of like have deeper opinions on music and things like that maybe you'd struggle with it but did you did you what do you think about yes I do think so, except for the bedrock that my folks had laid as a as a boy was pretty eclectic. I mean, they were big Beatles fans, so the Beatles were always on. They were my parents' music, and to some degree still are. I mean, I, I just went to see Paul McCartney up in Oakland with my wife. And oh, cool. As much as I loved it, I did feel like I was kind of in a boomer reality that I kind of actually had a little grind with. Like, I was really excited to go. I had fun. My wife and I had a good time, and he's like a Mozart to me. Sure. But I did feel a little like, okay, boomers, I've had enough from you. Like, we have our own music. Like, that's enough of this. And yeah. So in any case. Um, but no, I mean, to your to your question, generally, I've had a pretty open uh, approach to all kinds of different music because of that, you know, because of what my folks listen to, they listen to all kinds of, you know, they love Dire Straits and and um, I had Brian Adams Reckless and all that stuff. So there was the rock stuff, but then um, Bob Dylan and, and um, you know, they listened to a lot of evangelical praise music, which um, didn't hold up quite as well um, <laughs> for me. But uh, But in any case, it's still a lot of that, you know, jangly guitar and acoustics and stuff. It was, you know light rock or something um and then they loved soul music and and so you know i i kind of was just kind of trained in that 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 sort of really pickiness didn't kick in until my teenage years when i got really into punk and then it was like 
it was super picky for a while. It was like I got into grunge and Nirvana and Pearl Jam and all that. And then the further I went into the hardcore punk thing, at one point I remember selling all those CDs, you know, my right. whole CD I got rid of and no more Smashing Pumpkins. No, that's uh, corporate rock. And then obviously a year later settled down and was like, wait, I love all that music. What are you doing getting rid of these? <laughs> um, so really one of the one of the most everyone sort of laments this um streaming thing and for obvious reasons but one thing that I love about it is now that a lot of my friends have teenaged kids they don't identify as a clicky uh we're the goths or we're the punks you know they're they're much more well-rounded musically and that's always been a lifeblood thing for me is 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 uh, being open to all kinds of different kinds of music. You know, that was something I always prided myself on and, and felt like was the spice of life. And and one of the things I kind of ran from once I got into punk, I was like, wait a second, this seems an awful lot like those Christians who had all the rules, you know? So it was <laughs> yeah. um, it, something that I've always been pushing towards, like, you know, push the boundaries and, and, and be open to everything. You know, that's kind of always been my model. No, that then that's, that's a great way to live. Yeah. The, uh, it's funny. I've, I've had talks with friends where like there were songs in the nineties that I remember actively hating, like actively, yeah. like I, Oh, this song is the worst. And yeah. then as a full blown adult, I would uh-huh. hear those songs and be like, damn, that shit's pretty good. That's, 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 you know what I'm saying? Like, like I had, I had, I had an, an unspoken vendetta against like the wallflowers, but yo, those two, those two singles quite good. Oh my God. Quite good. That record, that whole record is, is undeniable, but I was in probably a similar phase. I had my girlfriend when the wall was in college, I was in high school and I was really into hardcore and and the wallflowers played her college. Okay. And I remember she, Oh, do you want to come with me? And to this day, I'm like, you fool, you should have said yes. Yeah. I should have gone. They were playing at a college nearby. Yeah. No, I'm going to go see, uh, you know, whoever it was, I was going to go see. (laughs) I'm going to go to the $5 show of the bands that don't exist a week later. (laughs) Exactly. And, and watch them watch all these men beat each other up. While a few, a few of their girlfriends stand in the back, you know, like, yeah. like even socially looking at it now from a further vantage, I'm like, that was weird. That was a weird way to spend um, a few years. Your, uh, a yeah. few years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then, I, you know, I ultimately ended up working for Sick of It All as a roadie. Oh, I didn't and know so that. It was, wow. it was even, yeah, it was even more years of spent yeah. watching people beat each other up. Um <laughs> Uh, and that's not to totally diminish what they do. Oh, they, I get they're it. incredible. Yeah. I I love them, but I, I but I do think culturally sometimes things uh, coalesce and and the culture of it becomes really weird. It's why we all probably have some weird thing with Dave Matthews. You're like, uh, I don't think I like that, and then you hear a song, and you're like, I don't mind this. This is good. <laughs> it's more of like the culture that has surrounded itself around yes. it. That you're a little bit more suspicious of or whatever. You know? I, I don't know. I don't know if Dave Matthews is on the forefront of your brain because uh, did you catch the funny anniversary of what today is? Oh yes, that's probably why. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Apparently, uh, I mean, this will come out a few weeks from now, but uh, apparently, today is the 18-year anniversary of them dumping all of the bus's sewage over a bridge and landing on people in a boat beneath. <laughs> I saw Laura Jean Grace tweet that, and she she said something to the effect of like, um, 
I just still can't believe they can poop on their bus. I saw the same tweet. I was, and that's the first place my brain went to as well. I was just like, what kind of fancy ass mansion bus did, uh, did Dave Matthews have that allowed that to happen? Yeah. Either that, or it wasn't shit, you know, yeah. either that, or it was just, they dumped the toilet and, and typically on a bus for those of you out right. there that are wondering what we're talking about. It's just, you can only pee in a bus. Yeah. Uh, cause otherwise the whole thing would smell. Um, yeah. But yeah, even, I don't know. Even the pee smells pretty, pretty bad sometimes. Oh, oh my god! Oh, it's awful. I mean, it's so funny. We we don't tour in a bus in America, um, yeah. but we do in Europe. And I always, and this is either a symptom of being kind of a malcontent or just someone <laughs> who, I don't know. I I always I gotta check my privilege, of course. But to some degree, you think as a younger person, like, oh, the bus is the goal. If you get to the bus, that means that you've da 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 But then you're on the bus, and you're not showering as much. Everyone pees right near where they sleep. It's really not an ideal situation <laughs> for comfort or travel. In fact, van and hotel is much more civilized. Uh, but I always wonder about the bus. Like, I'm always like, ah, the bus is just not that. And, and I also lay awake in that bunk off and wondering, oh, are we going to be able to pay for this? Oh, <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> so I always think of the bus is maybe not as good as it's cracked up to be. We uh, we have a divide in the band. Uh, some of us love it. Some of us are not big fans. We've only done it ever twice, and it's only been in Europe. And they've been big shares. Uh-huh. Like, the first time yeah. was three bands on, on a bus. It was like us, Converge, oh. and another band. So that's three bands <sighs> on a double-decker you know, oh. and then the second time was just uh, a couple of years ago and it was us and Deaf Heaven sharing. And that was, you know, those guys are really good friends of ours. So yeah. that was really fun. But like, yeah, the the pro is you get to wake up and you're just in town and that's awesome. That's great. You could stand, sure. you know, but also a lot of venues are on the outskirts of town. So sometimes you feel a little trapped, but um but uh yeah but yeah it's the the showering thing i'd rather just i'd rather just be in a van you save a lot of money and you can you can just i shower too. Every night. i mean yeah. we just toured my brother and our keyboard player and i just did the midwest and so yeah. we were doing some sort of off the beaten path like japanese tea garden in in rockford illinois we played the mile of music festival up in milwaukee and we were in a minivan and it was so joyful, and yeah. our keyboard player is new to us, right? So he did a big rock and roll tour with us as the Mermaid, right? And so he was like, "Whoa, I just finally did a tour, you know, where like we played the Bowery Ballroom and we played this." And the whole time, I was like, "We were coming out of pandemic, and I was a little like, man, I'm not so sure about this whole thing. I, mm. I feel, I feel like a lot of pressure, and it felt like the American city as a general idea was really under." a lot of stress and I just felt this existential dread throughout that tour. And on this tour in the minivan, we just like, I just got home yesterday. I had so much fun because we were light on our feet, no pressure. We were playing places. No one had heard of us and there were people there. And so, and our keyboard player was looking at us like, you're crazy. Like you can do the rock and roll thing with the band and the bus and you like this. And I'm like, man, I like easy going. I like no stress. I like to know that I'm going to get a shower. I like like and it's some of those creature comforts that we were talking about at the top of the interview that that now you're so used to as like resetting your day that I think I'm just the rest of it just seems a little too chaotic to me or something, you know. I, 
you were speaking the same language. I mean, also <laughs> being in a mini, I mean, I, I haven't done a minivan thing. And since, since I was real, I mean, we have to, you know, haul six or seven yeah. people usually, but like, right. It's sick that you can do that because, you know, you're probably playing with very, very bare bones, just like acoustics and things like that, which is awesome. And also yeah. you're kind of dry. You're, you mentioned laying awake in the bus being like, I hope we can afford this. And that you're just like <laughs> the lowest overhead possible, cheaper yeah. on gas. Like, Oh, it's yeah. You feel like I almost started to develop a little bit of pride. Like, look at what we aren't doing to the environment, you know, <laughs> sure, <laughs> really sure. batting ourselves on the back. But mean, meanwhile, it's just about, um, efficiency and, and, and kind of taking the pressure off when you can, because then, you know, in September we go to Europe and headline clubs in a bus yeah. that is a lot more, uh, pressure and a lot more, you have to consider a lot more of the factors. And I mean, I'm excited and I've done my therapy work and I'll, I'll enjoy that tour. And, um, I feel really fortunate to be able to do it, but there is an element of being able to do both that, that excites me. You know, I, I like to have sometimes low pressure, acoustic mm -hmm. chill kind of vibes 1000 percent um what was uh what was the first concert you went to the first concert well i had gone to various um like little um like again my folks were evangelical christians so there was like christian contemporary music that had come through so like james ward or kind of these kind of people that where the church would pay for one of these performers to play so i had attended some of those kind of events but the first one was the hooters uh, okay. my uncle had realized how into the uh, like rock and roll i was as a young boy and he took me to see them uh at the tower theater and so you know i think we were in the second to last row and he still talks about that look of abject terror and excitement when they played the when i heard the first loud note he was like you know you were so little and it just seemed like thunder or something you know like being in the middle of a thundercloud or something um so that was the first show and um and so yeah they really made an indelible mark on me as as a kid and and then uh, so to get to work with eric later as a you know he produced bury me in philly um years later and that was such a a thrill to get to work with like the first person that made that big of an impact on on me this podcast is presented by DistroKid, an incredible service for musicians that helps you upload your songs to all music streaming platforms from itunes to spotify and apple music then pays you revenue from your songs all in one place They've got a really cool new feature called Splits that allows you to add collaborators so you can pay your co-writers and fellow musicians without needing an accountant. To get 30% off your first year's DistroKid subscription, just head to distrokid.com slash VIP slash hard times. Love, love full circle situations. It's yeah, like some of the most cool. exciting, some of the most exciting stuff too. It's, and and this is by no means to diminish his career or anything like that. But like um, for me, who's unfamiliar with that band, I'd be curious to hear a single if I, if I would recognize it, but I was going to say is like the things that um, personally are full circle moments for, you know, for, for specific individuals that someone else might not completely understand. Oh um, yeah. He's a really humble guy. Despite, I mean, he's been nominated for Grammys and sure. all that. He's, you know, certainly made, a King's Ransom to write songs. And he was very taken with that, 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 you know, that I had that kind of uh, relationship. Uh, 
Yeah, that I was so excited as a kid about his work and and still am. You know, I still think he's a great songwriter. And and so to work together, he knew that that was present in the air. And 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 so that was a, a nice full circle thing for him too. Yeah, I love those kinds of things. I mean, in in so many ways, um, you know, I, I always think about those impactful times when a band or a or a, a song or something really hit. And, uh, you know, for instance, as, a, as an older person, I was in The Loved Ones and heard the uh, Hold Steady in, on, on a tour we were doing with Strike Anywhere. I heard that I just bought the record and put it in my headphones. And, and so that was another instance of like having a record really shake me. And then we ended up, The Loved Ones, the next record we put out, some of those guys played on the record and we toured with them. And it was another kind of full circle um, thing. I love when that stuff happens, when, when, when you are so moved by something and then you end up working together in some capacity. Um, and it, it's always, it's always a treat. I actually, that was the second time I saw the loved ones. I went to that show in LA when you opened for oh, the whole study. Yeah. yeah. Where what, was that? The Fonda? Maybe, it was at or? the, it was at a venue that still exists, but is mostly just a nightclub now. But I think at that point, because uh, it used to be called the palace. Now it's called the Avalon. Yes. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yep. Mm, yeah. That was a, a fun show. As a kid, as a kid, I went to uh, shows that when it was still the palace, like all the time. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, then once it turned to the Avalon, I don't think I'd only been a few times. And uh, that was maybe possibly the last show that I went to there, which is kind of crazy. Because like yeah, I said, I think they just right. do dance club mm-hmm. stuff. But like um, we went, I went with the guitar player in my band. Uh, we mm-hmm. went to see you guys. And, oh, sweet. And were unfamiliar, like, knew of the name, the Hold Steady, but had never, like, dove in. Right. And both Clay and I were like, yo, this band fucking rocks. Like, this is, like, really super, do. super good. And then, yeah. you know, years later now, uh, uh, Greg Finn and I have, like, a, like, a, we have, like, an online friendship, but we still never met in person. But there's so, you know, it's, like, just exactly as you're saying, it's, like, everything is... Uh, such full circle moments. That's awesome. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, uh, they're great. I mean, he. I'm, I'm sure he. Um, I'm sure he's a fan of what you do. No, just knowing the stuff that he's into. I'm, totally. I'm I think sure that's how it started. Which is, I was like super, super taken back by. I think he maybe yeah. did like a, a year end list, or I forget what it was. But I was just like so taken back when he like you know dropped our name in something. I was like, holy shit, yeah. that's really cool. Um, he's a he's a punk man. He's he's great. So was guitar your first instrument? Did you play anything else before that? Um, I did play piano. Yeah, I went for piano lessons. Um, just sort of the obligatory, oh, you and your sisters are into music, and we want you to have this bedrock understanding of how music works, and that I, that sort of lays out on a piano really well. And so I did that for a couple years and did some recitals, you know, the the sort of stuff you do in piano lessons. Um, and you know, it's a regret not sticking with piano. It's, it's such a big part of what we do now. I, I can plink around. I, I write a lot on piano, but I'm slow. It's like, it's kind of, um, it's like how I am with German or, or, uh, any foreign language that I've taken. I, I kind of know a little just to get going, but it takes me a lot of, um, a lot of work to get even, even proficient. Um, I was getting pretty good on piano and then, um, we had the, we had the twins and 
any extra time I've been really trying to spend as a dad. So I'll get so back to like, piano. But yeah, as I say, so guitar. you actually, as like an older as like an older adult, you like came back to it and were like, let, let me see what I could still kind of figure out and remember. Did you take Did you take any like newer classes or anything, or was it just kind of learning on your own? Um, no, I just learned on my own. I, I learned some of the my own songs, you know, based on the players that we had hired to play piano on on the early records and. Um, I mean, I can kind of get around, you know, like I can get through a song. I, it also was born of, um, initially I did a bunch of, between records one and two, I wanted to not just be on acoustic guitar or electric guitar. I wanted to in, involve another musical element in the show just because I think it can get a little old just hearing, you know, the same thing for an, an hour or something. So I wanted to play some piano. Um, in the show. So I kind of learned a couple songs that way to get, just to give some variety to the show. And that was before Tim, my brother came on and he's been with me ever since 2014. But, um, yeah, I did, did you come have, back to it then. Did you have much luck doing the, like, did you perform ever just you and a piano? Yeah. Yeah. I did I, it a bunch. Um, I don't know. I, I liked it. I think more than the fans did. <laughs> I don't this know. Is, actually, this I, is for the know, variety. This is actually for you people, not for yeah. not for my own self. Yeah, that's really funny. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I I don't know if it was. I liked it. I thought it was cool. Um, I love really simple piano accompaniment to songs. You know, the John Lennon kind of imagine approach to to banging out a song or the Oasis kind of piano that that they do that really deliberate rhythm. Um, I love to hear songs that way. So I guess it was successful in that I was able to (laughs) (laughs) set a challenge. Yeah. 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 I got through it. Yeah. Yeah. I got through a bunch of versions. Tim's much better at piano than I am my brother. So when, when he came along, I, I kind of more stuck to guitar and, and he would take over the piano. And now we have an incredible piano player in Mark Maysfield. He's like, just, he's one of those like Billy Joel guy. He can play everything. And and so he just, you know, it's like, could you play a little bit of Regina Spector? And he's like, well, sure. And he just dives right in. You're like, oh my God. Damn. So, yeah. So he's great. And so it's, it's just better. I don't bother <laughs> right now. He's so good that uh, nobody wants to hear me play when they can hear him play. Uh, when did you start playing guitar? Around 12. Um, I got into, I was one of those punk rock through metal guys. Like my, an uncle had played Same. me the clash. Yeah, I bet we're, we're of a similar age. Right. So, um, there's like an era where you would buy the BMG records and you'd get like bad religion and sick of it all and whatever, like whoever had signed to a major label that was kind of metal or whatever, that was my way in. So before that, it was like Metallica, Iron Maiden. Um, I got into Aerosmith. It was like all like kind of gateway druggy, you know, like I, I was into pop and rock and then got into the harder stuff, so to speak. Um, so right around 12, I I, I was into... I guess it would have been like Iron Maiden and and those kinds of things, as well as Danzig and the Misfits and things like that. So, um, and I, my dad was like, "Okay, I'll buy you a guitar." And I wanted a BC Rich, of course, like a spiky, you know, now really kind of gross looking guitar. Yeah. And so he wanted me to get a Strat because he had some sense, and um, <laughs> we settled on an Ibanez, a black Ibanez without too much flair. You know, it did have a little bit of points on the on the horns or whatever. Um, and I still have that somewhere. I think it's actually at my dad's. That's an extremely funny, uh, just meeting of the meeting of the two. 
you know, being oh, like, I wish I would have gotten a, a damn strat then, you know, like if he, <laughs> it was just before Pearl Jam came out. And if I would have waited, um, I probably would have agreed based on my love for them. And McCready plays a strat. And all plays that stuff. a strat. But, yeah. 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 But I wanted something with flair, you know, I wanted something to look kind of metal. And no, so, I'm with, I'm with you. Yeah. I mean, I remember my, my, when I was a kid, my first guitar was just like the, you know, very cheap uh squire strap but my second guitar was an ibanez because i had gotten into to metal and stuff like that yeah. but like i remember just it was hard to decide between like the ibanez and the jackson because i'm like metallica i think <laughs> plays jackson's and or right. whatever you know what i'm saying i'm like oh but uh this other stuff likes ibanez whatever but i know what you're saying like they had sharp like the the headstock had the sharp point on uh yes. on that stuff yes. so it was it appealed to the metal sensibility, but it wasn't a in completely insane uh, design, body shape. Yeah, I mean, in the end, I, you know, there's half of me is a guitar purist. You know, like I'm like, oh no, you need a Les Paul, or you know, half of me is that, right? So I'm that's kind of what I do. I play the right tool for the job, so to speak. Yeah, but there is part of me that thinks it would be so cool if there was like a. I mean, I guess this would be like turnstile right like that don't they play more metally looking guitars or i i feel like i've seen uh, some newer bands yeah and and they're not a new band but you know what i'm trying to get at sure there's there's a certain age maybe now where you can just play a a parker or a um, prs with unabashed um fervor and i really think that would be cool like again to kind of like buck the the guys with the rules, you know, like, oh, you have to have a Strat or a, a yeah. Telecaster. It's like, you can play anything you want, whatever it suits you, you know? Yeah, I think there's yeah. a little... It would be cool if there was more of that. I, I completely agree. I feel like it's easy to cheat these days, too, because it doesn't matter what guitar you play. People could just plug their guitar straight into, like, a computer pedal that is going to make it sound like a Telecaster anyway, regardless yeah, of that's what right. they're playing. I <laughs> but, know. I but, know. It's true. But, but the pictures, though... The, pi- the, pictures the pictures of it, well, is you can't hear the picture, so it'll right. still look metal, it's true. you know? <laughs> um, yeah. What was, uh, when it comes to guitar, do you remember what the first guitar, you, or sorry, the first song you learned how to play was? Like, uh, like any of that stuff that, like, made you feel like you could actually play the guitar? Yeah, I learned Angel by Aerosmith. They were in their um, mid-period. They were coming back from, I guess, a brink. I didn't know this at the time, but I just saw them on MTV. So they did Permanent Vacation and Pump, and those were like returns to the top for them. And and I think they they hired co-writers or something. And so you get these like big pop hits and... um, and uh, that ballad "Angel" I really liked, and and so I learned that with a a guitar teacher in in town, um, and that was a thrill to kind of like start to figure out some of the leads and and um, and the chords, and it, it sort of sounded like it, you know, it sounded like it enough to me to be an encouragement to keep going. Um, so was yeah, Joe, it was Angel was like Joe Perry, uh, like a guitar, like one of the first guitar players you kind of admired. Or was it just that song? Probably, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they made such a big deal of of that Steven Tyler, Joe Perry thing, just like Axel and Slash, like right around, like I, that was all coming into focus for me all at the same time. I didn't yeah. realize that Axel and Slash were influenced by Aerosmith at the time. I just saw sort of all, saw them all in MTV. Sure. And there was like David Lee Roth and Eddie Van Halen. There was sort of like the lead singer and the lead guitar player thing. The ACDC so. thing too. Like yeah, Angus. exactly. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, like, it's interesting that that was such a prevalent thing. And I feel like we don't really 
have we haven't had that in kind of a minute. Yeah, I wonder if it's sort of tied to some other American myth or or you know like the Lone Ranger and Tonto or something. Like I wonder sure. if there's like some other weird association that that sort of it plays on or something. I don't know. But yeah, that yeah. was a really prevalent thing. Um and then, you know, Metallica, I was super into uh into them. And so like fumbling my way through um Seek and Destroy and things like that were really a thrill and and then as I got more and more into punk, the guitar seemed like something I could actually play because it it wasn't, um, you know, you didn't have to be like, that stuff's really hard to play Metallica and, and, and so on, you know, his right hand is, is so incredible. It's like a jackhammer. Whereas, um, and, and not to say that Johnny Ramones is, hand isn't but in a different way you could finger those chords and and make the song kind of work and so as i got more into punk because i had a little bit of struggle trying to learn alice in chain songs or metallica songs or iron maiden songs um punk seemed a little bit easier and i could like sort of conceive of a way i could play on a stage playing punk music a thousand yeah one thousand percent i always i always say i feel like when people when kids start playing guitar um, it's the kids who stick with metal that are the ones that eventually learn how to shred pretty, pretty quickly. Whereas the kids yeah. who lean into the punk stuff, um, sometimes that's as good as they stay, but they're able mm-hmm. to write a hell of a lot of songs with what they learned when they were 14. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Right. It's, it's so true. I mean, in the end, I would say I pretty much went that way. Um, and, but that's how I discovered songwriting and, and sort of was able to come back to folk, you know, the folk influences I had as a kid or whatever, um, or Bruce Springsteen or Tom Petty or all those like big looming influences from the eighties. I was able to come back to those, um, easier because I was so into punk and it, it's simple. The music is, is theoretically it's simple. Obviously. Yeah, no, I get it. Um, I, I remember Dan Yeeman sort of saying when I was in painted black that, he thought punk was some of the hardest music to play well, um, which I don't, I'm not sure I still agree. I don't know if I agree with that, but he is right that it's a lot harder than it looks. You know, I think like to get really good and get great sound as a band, as a punk unit or something, that's really hard. Um, yeah. It's harder th- than it looks. That's an, it's a, that's an interesting conversation. I never really thought about It's like, at, <laughs> it's pretty easy to write a punk song. Just, Yes. Whatever you want to call, you know, you can throw yeah, three sure. chords and a fast drum beat and yell some lyrics mm-hmm. on top of it. But to yeah. write a punk song that is memorable, that has something to it, that is the elevated step. You know, like anyone yeah. can do a punk band, but to do a punk band that has a hook, to do a punk band that has, you know, it's like, it's like yeah, that's that's yeah. where the other songwriting influences probably step into it. Uh, it's, I mean, I found that to be true yeah. in the, in Americana music though too, or sure. whatever other things we've gone into um, when we've done more indie rock sort of stuff. Or I mean, it's always songs. And so when you go back to Metallica and Iron Maiden now as an adult, I mean, the thing that stands up for them them is songs. And so that's kind of always been the North Star I keep turning towards because no matter who it is um, and what style or genre, it's songs. It's Kendrick Lamar's. It's the same thing. You're like, there's some beating heart of song, Taylor Swift, et cetera. Like, you're like, wow, that's a great song. And, and that's what makes, I think, the whole thing work. When you have other really cool elements to it, great. All the, all the better. But Sure. It, 
Yeah, Scott, you're, you're, it's funny. I love the Dan Eamon comment, considering it just took me back to, uh, I don't know if you ever heard this story, but they, we all played Fun 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 Fest uh, in mm-hmm. Austin. Um, and I remember, I didn't witness it happen, but I saw them tweet about it. Or like, uh, it was the same year that they were filming that um, movie Song to Song that had like Ryan Gosling and stuff like that. So Ryan Gosling was walking around the festival watch oh, like okay. standing side stage and they were like filming him because he's supposed to be playing like an a and r guy in the movie um so so <laughs> oh, like no all kid. The, yeah all of the bands are like walking around just being and it's a terrence malick movie and i'm gonna be honest it stinks it's like it's, it's oh, not a, a bad? It's, it's a bad movie it's not it's not a very okay. good movie i remember we were all so excited because we knew that there was going to be this like fun 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 footage or yeah. whatever um but but i remember it was super funny because uh apparently daniel uh sorry uh ryan gosling watched paint it black from the side of the stage and then went <laughs> up to to one of them i and i don't know who was running their twitter account i can't imagine it was dan it, it might have been andy nelson or it's something either like that. dan or andy they yeah. go back and forth sure yeah. so so what apparently he went up to them and was was like hey man you guys are pretty good for a punk band and he was like man, why, why'd you have to add that last part to it man come on like it's, it's like you guys are pretty good for a punk band and he was like oh man why'd you, have to, you just had to add that little piece at the end son of a oh man that's good that's good and dan is a you know he's a, a doctor, doctor of psychology yeah. so there's no way around that he knew right away that it was, you know, he's like, oh, wow, that was a dicky thing to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, you took the so compliment funny. and just backhanded the shit out of it. Um, yeah. Oh, was, man, uh, that's funny. What was, uh, what was the first band that you did? The first band I did was a band, well, I did a, um, a talent show style band in yep. eighth grade. I was taking, uh, there were, t- <laughs> I went to Christian school, Christian private school. My mm-hmm. folks were working class people and they felt like the best use of their limited means was to send us to Christian school, which we could go along about, but let's not. But anyway, the only two, uh, um, languages available to us, cause it was a really small school were Latin. I just think they knew a Christian guy who knew Latin. And so they taught <laughs> that and they taught German, which I wish I would have taken German cause I go to Germany all the time yeah, to play. Yeah, yeah but i took latin and we called ourselves vespertilian that's creature of the night uh in latin a terrible name but uh we we played a talent show i'll be and, honest as uh, far as far as first band names shows had a lot worse <laughs> it's not that bad it's not that bad <laughs> it's not that great either but we were vespertilian <laughs> we did the one show and uh it was really fun i'm still friends with all the guys in that in that little band were you playing it, covers or originals we wrote a couple originals, and then that was that. Um, what and then and step ahead, like step ahead, was like a r- actual band we tried out. We were in. I was in high school, and my friends had graduated, and we like played with Kid Dynamite and Sick of It All, and played in the Philadelphia hardcore scene. Um, um, and, yeah, before uh, just before we get to to talk about step ahead for a second, does uh, were you singing in in this band that played the talent show? Or were you just playing guitar? Back up singing. This was my thing for years. I think maybe because we touched on this earlier and it, it actually occurred to me, the Steven Tyler, Joe Perry thing. Like I always thought, well, I'll be the guitar player and then we'll, ha- we'll need a singer, a front person. And that lasted all the way through the curse until the loved ones when, you know, uh, the guys that I ended up playing in the loved ones with were like, you have to sing. If we do this band, you have to sing and play guitar. But before that, I always thought, no, 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 I, I'll play, I'll sing, you know, second 
fiddle to whoever the front man. And did that even in, in um, Paint It Black. Paint It Black, you know, I was yeah. in Paint It Black. Um, and for some reason, I just identified that way. I thought, well, no, 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 I play guitar and I'll do some singing. But, but then did you know when you were younger that you had the ability to sing? Like, did you, were you singing, you know, having to sing in church and stuff like that? Like, did you know you had the ability? No, I just thought everybody could sing in key. I just thought that that was what happened. I didn't realize that that was such an elusive thing. Um, you bet it and is. And honestly, I don't really think I'm much of a singer now. I don't think... Like, when you think of singers... Like, I think of Smokey Robinson and Adele and, like, these incredible, like, vocal... Or or even on, on, the, on the punk side of things, like, people who can scream or, or like, really... I don't think of myself much as a vocalist. I know I can sing. I can hold a tune, and I, and I think it's... But I think it sounds much better when I'm harmonizing with my brother than when I sing on my own. So, um, But I did know that I could hold the tune, and, and, and that was an early frustration working with singers, was like, wait a second. You can't hit that? You know, oh, it just goes like this. And so it, it just took me a while to understand, like, oh, well, that's not an innate ability for everyone. Sure. Um, I just assumed everyone knew how to sing because everyone in my family could sing. And and at church, it seemed like everybody knew how to sing, you know. Yeah. There was, like, like, the odd duck at church that was out of key that we would sort of be like, hey, can you believe it can't even carry? Like, I thought that was the the exception, not the rule. Ah, interesting, interesting. Was uh, was Step Ahead the first band that you recorded with? Yes, yes. Okay, we recorded. Um, what was and, the, and it's, Yeah, what was your first recording experience like? It was cool. It was like a guy who had a local in our little uh, working class neighborhood of, of Philadelphia called Roxborough. There was a guy who had a studio, and he charged by the hour kind of thing. It was a cool converted old barn. And it's no longer there, but we recorded an album there. It was just like the classic, like, we want to record. Where would we go? And we looked in the phone book, and there was a studio locally that we knew we could, like, you know, almost carry the gear to. Was that um, the, the There's Always Hope record? Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. And that's and Steve Wellner? Steve Wellner, yeah, who went on to, like, do all kinds of things. Like, he was a legitimate recording engineer. So for us four blockheads to go in there and record, it must have been like, oh, my God, these guys are horrible. (laughs) But uh, it was really fun, and we really meant it. Like, we really were up for whatever, and when he had suggestions... um, we would listen. And it was so funny because he essentially just engineered the record. And when we got done, uh, it was like two days. We recorded 10 songs or something. And he, when we got done, he goes, hey, guys. He had a real soft-spoken demeanor. And he goes, guys, um, if you ever want me to, like, if you ever want to come back and I'll produce, I would love to be considered. And I looked at him like, what did you just do? What do you mean? And he was like, oh, I, I was the engineer. Yeah. And I was like, I don't even know what you're saying. Look, produce. Like, didn't we produce an album? And he was like, well, you guys made all the decisions. Right. And I just remember looking at the drummer, who's like still my best buddy. The, the drummer and the bass player from Step Ahead are still my two best friends. And we looked around and went like, man, he's far out. You know, because he, he like smoked weed and stuff. We were kind of straight edge or whatever we yeah. were at that time. And I was like, man, this guy's on drugs or something. I don't know what he means. He, we... We literally have an album done here. 
What did, we just produced it. Now, obviously, I know what he was saying. That's so an interesting. Have, yeah, that's an interesting early lesson to learn. I feel like I didn't even learn that for, you know, like until well into like making records where I was like, oh, there is a difference. I think it was like Steve Albini talking about it yeah. at some point that introduced me to that concept or he's like, I don't tell people what to do. I just record it. I record what you sound like. Right. And that's such a blurry line now. Like totally. obviously the more records you make, everyone has a different personality. Everyone has a different way of working. And so you realize like those, those aren't ever really clearly defined roles unless you define them. Like if you are Steve Albini and that's your MO, fine, you know, like sure. you know, we know going in what that, what that means. But yeah, so we made that record and it's funny because our friend Colin, who end up, ended up replacing me in Paint It Black, uh, Colin and I were both the roadies for Kid Dynamite. So that it's all kind of this like, um, really long-standing friendships that that go yeah. way 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 back to then but colin wanted to start a record label he was a he was in commercial construction young you know he he got in he's still in it but he got in young and so he was what we thought was making a lot of money he was just actually working as an adult and <laughs> you know making he a, had a steady paycheck yeah yeah, he has steady paycheck. So he was like, I'm, I'm going to put it out. I'm going to put out your record. And it's going to be called In It For It. Because I'm in it for it. I'm in the scene for the scene. And again, we were like, I don't really know what that means. But sure, if you want to pay for the recording, great. And so he paid, or no, sorry, we paid for the recording and he paid for the manufacture of the CDs. Okay. And um, so we made a thousand CDs, played some shows. We got some great shows. Like we opened for Madball. We opened for Sick of It All at the Trocadero in Philadelphia, which was like a mountaintop thing. Sure. Um, we opened for Dillinger 4. We opened for Kid Dynamite a bunch. And we ended up headlining shows and doing all right in Philly. You know, we draw 200 people or something. I, I and, tried uh, to I tried to find it. Uh, it's not on it's not on streaming services. And I was like, YouTube usually has stuff. It's not I couldn't find it on there. It might, it might just be a hard to a hard to search thing. But what it, what was this? <laughs> was it that sort of um, Philadelphia like? Kid Dynamite ish sort of sound, or was no? It, more- it predated that. It predated that. In other words, I, when I did the Curse, um, that was post Kid Dynamite. So we had more of a blueprint for what we thought sure. was cool because Kid Dynamite did so well, and I loved them, yeah. and I was around them so much. It inevitably got made its way into my uh, songwriting for the Curse. But in, in Step Ahead, it was like, here's a song that sounds like the Bouncing Souls. Here's a song that sounds like the Deftones. Here's a song that sounds like sick of it all. We were just playing whatever we thought whatever. was Whatever. Cool, yeah. You know? And and so it was it it sounded probably going back, it probably sounded more like a mixtape than it did <laughs> a band with an identity. Because we just liked so much music and we thought it all was cool. And we weren't it was funny, uh Robbie Redcheeks was the main promoter, the hardcore promoter in town, and he he said years later, we 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 did a drawing. Uh, our singer was like a, you know, he, he was super into comic books and he drew us all as superheroes and put that as the cover and was like, if, if step ahead is here, there's always hope or whatever the concept was. Right. And, and it was horrible. The, 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 the look of it. I mean, he did a great job, but it just was a horrible choice (laughs) for for a record cover. And looking back and Robbie said years later, like, I thought you guys were really good. And if you hadn't had that as your record cover, I would have given you so many more shows. And we're like, (laughs) Thanks, dude. Thanks. That's, that's, that's <laughs> but a in any case, it's the that's the most. Uh, we have a we have a saying in our van, which is uh, which, uh, and I can say this because I know Robbie a little bit. I, uh, we yeah. have a saying which is uh, ECF East Coast fuck, where they'll just say yeah. something very blunt and very yes. harsh, or yes. like d- 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 let you in on some truth that you maybe weren't aware of at the time. You're like, oh, it's a very ECF Yo, thing to say. Yes. It was ECF AF. <laughs> 
It was yes. rough, man. But you know, but in in spite of all that, and not necessarily being allowed into the the cooler click, yeah, we ended up playing with a lot of incredible bands and making friendships with the guys in Kid Dynamite and you know Dillinger Four, who to this, I mean, I did a covers record in 2020 of all Patty songs. Like, yeah, it's still part of my musical Fabric. DNA, and so yeah. And he remembered Step Ahead and was like, you guys were good, you know, maybe a little confused, but good. But I kind of think of that confusion as a positive thing because yeah. we weren't... You were figuring it out. We, yeah, it was like really joyful and there wasn't this big attachment to like determine what's our sound, you know, because like if you're chasing art or artistry your sound probably is going to change. And so I think that that in the end was kind of a cool thing that we didn't I get, I sort of understood it as soon as Kid Dynamite kind of came along and blew past us in terms of popularity. It was like, oh, they have a really formed idea of what it is they're going to... Oh, I see. And everyone's responding to this in a really deliberate way. Okay, I get it. And so then Form the Curse, which I think was a little bit less musically um, exciting, frankly. It was a little bit more like, okay, well, here's how you make punk and... You know, the furthest away we'd go from that would be like, this song kind of sounds like a veil or rancid. It's like, it's all the same kind of stuff, you know, yeah. on, on, in that curse batch. And then uh, that sort of gateway to the loved ones later. And that was a little bit more of a deliberate songwriting stylistic approach. When, so I, when I'm looking at the timeline, it looked like the curse and painted black were happening. Like you were in both those kind of at the same time. So was your yeah. life just like, I'm just playing music now. Like this is my, this is my full focus. Not exactly, because I was working for the Bouncing Souls as well. So, oh, wow. Yeah, so music music was constantly going. I was constantly at a show, playing a show, working a show. Um, and in retrospect, it's a regret that I quit Paint It Black. I quit Paint It Black once the loved ones got up and going, because we were getting a lot of tours and attention, and we signed a record deal. And um, I didn't realize that these guys were going to stay a band and play once every four years. At the time, it felt like it was it was too big a commitment to be in both. So I quit. I sang a bunch of stuff on Paradise, their second album. And then I was like, look, man, I, I got to bail. I'm, I'm going to chase the loved ones. My mom was sick with cancer. And mm -hmm. uh, so it was very it was a very fraught time that I wish I just would have held on and been like, hey, Dan. Could you get a fill in and I'll, I'd love to be in Paint It Black now, you know, like yeah. I'd play with them now. It's, it'd be so fun to play one show in that idiom every three years and really like get to mix it up. Cause that's one thing that's missing from my musical makeup now. It's like, I don't do the, the wildest we get would be like a loved one song in a Dave Haas and the Mermaid set. Like it, it's, I never see a mosh pit right. um, anymore. And I would love, I mean, I love that. And, yeah, and yeah, so yeah. it would be really fun to get to, to sort of play that. And, and I love those guys. I love Yeeman. I love Andy. And, and like I said, who knew they would be so lazy and only play. <laughs> right. <laughs> I was going to say, like, I only saw them on an actual tour tour. I think once it was like them. I don't think you would have, did you ever tour with them or no? I did early, early. Like, I, like we, did you do West Coast? Because I saw them with um, From Ashes Rise and Coliseum at the Troubadour. I don't think I did that tour. Okay. I don't know that I did that tour. I did a Loved Ones Paint at Black West Coast tour. Oh, where I okay. just played, played twice. Um, but uh, I think right after that, I must have bailed or, you know, it, it's really foggy. I used to drink a ton back then, too. Like, my again, my mom was sick. I had developed all kinds of addiction issues too so i was i was pre, I, like a lot of that's really 
hazy, hazy on sure. what happened when and where. Um, what was, was, uh, actually it's, you know, it's funny. I, this is the sound that the podcast gets sometimes where I lean over and like grab something that, that's next to me. Yeah. I completely forgot that I actually have this guy that the coach yeah. is on. So I'm, yeah. ho- I'm holding up, there's a 10 inch comp, uh, that has the curse painted black knives out. This is, is this just like, was like Andy Nelson Central right here, which is it really is <laughs> Andy you. Nelson it's Central. Both you. Were you on both these tracks? Yeah, too? I was the on cur- both songs. So, yeah, uh huh. That's really funny. Um, yeah, and Go for the Throat was that guy Colin who I mentioned who ended up in Paint It Black. That was his band. Oh my! He goodness. ended up also working for Sick of It All, also um, working for Kid Dynamite. Also, I mean, he's still a dear friend of mine. It should be called the incestuous Philadelphia sound. That's what this comp should be called. Or it should be called a Philadelphia (laughs) sound, because it's not the Philadelphia (laughs) sound. Uh, The Philadelphia sound is probably the roots, but that is a sound that happened very briefly, and it was really cool, uh, that thing happening. I wish there was some way to have... I kept all that going and, and, and blossomed as songwriters and people, you know, we were all kind of getting around 30 ish. And so a lot of people involved in that little window were needing to make hard adult choices. about 1000%. time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I noticed that, um, I didn't realize it at the time, but that Brian McTurnan did the, uh, the curse EP, right? He did. In so, fact, it's a yeah, funny story. He he um we I ended up working down at his house. The curse the curse record I Paint It Black recorded a demo with McTurnan. Okay. And and we recorded all the music and I recorded all my backups without Yeeman there. Like Yeeman couldn't sing for whatever reason. And so Brian's what Brian thought Paint It Black was gonna sound like sounded kind of like the curse because it was all he heard initially was the blistering fast music and my vocals where I'd come in, you know, I would like sort of answer the stuff he even was doing. And then, so I said, Hey, I got this other band that kind of sounds like this. And on the back of that, Brian was like, well, I'd love to record it. Whatever it is, I'm down. So we were like, Whoa, we got Brian McTurnan in and he's a friend now. And, and I sort of went back to the curse was like, we can go record with him. And we recorded the curse, um, EP and, um, and then the curse imploded, at which point Brian made that really popular Thrice album, right? Brian McTurnan recorded yeah. at that same house this big Thrice record, um, Artist in, in the Ambulance. Yeah. And I was a contractor and out of work and my band had just broken up. And Brian was like, well, why don't you, I really think you need to do this Loved Ones idea you've been telling me about. But in the meantime, you can remodel my third floor while Thrice is here, stay out of their hair, and... And you work up there, and at nighttime, you can work on your songs. And so this was kind of like all happening around the same time. Well, of course, we made friends with Thrice and and had a great time, and they wanted to hang out with us up there and clown around, pretending we knew what we were doing on the contracting side. And um, but, but yeah, so Brian became this really strong force. He ended up producing the first Loved Ones record on the back of the curse thing, and then he actually partially made that first uh, solo record resolutions with me. He gave us the studio and set us all up and then Pete produced. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I was going to ask what that, if the curse led to him doing um, the, uh, the keep your heart record. Um, did he do yes. the EP too? I'm assuming he did the EP. Um, he did, Let me think about, yes, he did do the okay. EP. Yep. Cause mm-hmm. that's obviously what started. But the point I was just thinking about, I, so I had Brian on a, a couple weeks ago 
And yeah. uh, it was a really fun talk. But he told me, he told me, I think he told me a story that Thomas from Strike Anywhere lost his lyric book. So his punishment made him paint a room in his house or something like that. I'm like, it sounds like this guy's just, he, it's a hack for him where he's like, oh, I got these uh, dickhead musicians. I'm going to just make them work on my house. And then, I've, then that's, that's how I'll, yeah, I'll get He did done. have quite a hustle going, however, how, and he is a hustler, right? So sure, he may have hustled Thomas, but he never met Brendan and I. And he never met two bigger hustlers from Philadelphia. <laughs> and so what happened was, so he put us up there and he wanted his whole third floor remodeled with a bathroom suite. Uh-huh. And I said to him plainly, I go, listen, man, I don't know anything about uh, plumbing. Sure. He goes, dude, I got a quote to remodel that third floor. And it was $17,000. And we were looking at each other like, whoa. And he goes, I'm sure you guys can finish the project for less than seventeen. He said in the end, the bathroom cost him 22 grand. <laughs> so he got hustled. He got hustled. Yeah, he did. We just were up there clowning around, you know, like at one point he got home from an errand and he's got this major label band, you know, Thrice is a real popular, big yeah. promise, all this stuff. He got home in the snow, right? And we had a drywall delivery and this Thrice guys are on the slippery ass roof. <laughs> Helping us load drywall through a, a, an attic window. He hit the roof. He was like, what the fuck are you guys doing up there? He sat Brendan and I down and was like, listen, you two clowns. Like, I, these guys have to work. They have to focus on their album. They can't be up there, uh, you know, messing with you guys. Because we would just clown around. You know, we were just being silly up there. So, yeah, oh, that's there's, a, it's, it, that's it's a lot of Yeah, it was really fun, man. That was probably like my mid-20s. Or, or yeah, leading into Loved Ones must have been like... 25 26 years old oh that's so good uh with uh so we could talk about the loved ones for a little bit did um where did your relationship with uh with that record start like how did that how did that swing into to happening for those uh because the was the ep on fat actually i don't know that the ep was on jade tree that's Um, correct right so you probably had a relationship from painted black and all that stuff we were really friends with the jade tree guys in fact at one point they were like you should do a and r for us because i think i brought them strike anywhere the explosion and some other band i told them about um and i mean the loved ones you know they were like dude dude you should be and so like they would take me to other showcases and be like what do you think about this uh, this band and I, you know, I was just happy to get pizza and a ride to a gig in New York City, and, and yeah. I'd just tell them my opinion, and we'd clown around. But um, so we put that out. I think for me, working for Sick of It All for those couple of years, they were quite taken with Fat Records, and and so many great records came out in that era on Fat. So it was like I think Mike had allowed some of the employees to do signings. So Dylan Jafour um, was really. Uh, happy with being on fat and um uh, same time as like that smoker fire record i remember that was around yeah that time. there's a bunch there's an era where a lot of the stuff sounds kind of loved ones-esque or whatever you yeah know, it's like that kind of genre rise against and sure and a lot of those bands were doing well or starting up over there it seemed like there was a shift a veil was signed to to fat so it seemed like the place to go for that kind of music if you wanted to tour and chase it and really like try to make it professionally or something whereas epitaph the souls were in epitaph and they were happy there but it seemed really big and like scary you know it seemed like i don't know i don't know if we want to be like the offspring or you know it just seemed like more big la business and and mike and and aaron and fat at the time felt more i mean they were also like hanging out with us you know so like I knew Mike from working for the souls and doing tours with no effects and stuff like that. So there was just more of a, 
a um it just familiarity. Felt more, yeah, there's more family feeling element to it because you had these prior relationships. You didn't. Yeah. Yeah. In 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 retrospect, though, when the loved ones put out that EP, we we ended up going to California and we played a show in San Francisco with Mike and NoFX, and then we went down to LA and played a show with Bad Religion and met with. Um, Side One Dummy and Epitaph and the, all those labels seemed interested at the time in what the loved ones were doing. And I, I really regret not taking the um, conversation and the meeting with Brett more seriously because he just seemed so, um, so much more serious and, um, you know, sort of looking to make the band successful. And I was more like, ah, I just want to get comfortable. And in the end, it probably would have been better for us. Um, just because I think the addiction part of it, like Mike was pretty into partying and stuff. And so were we, and, and Brett was already sober and was like really interested in songs and, and being deliberate in your approach to your artistry and, and the economics of all that stuff. And so I think in the end, it might've been better for me and the band to be with that like-minded vein more so than the situation. I mean, fat was, was nice to us. They were cool, but I think, um, familiarity when it comes to partying and doing drugs and drinking and all that stuff is not a positive thing. So it's weird how you sort of can look at it with, with more distance now. And I, and I appreciate that they, they took a chance. Oh, on for us. Sure. That's cool. Um, yeah. But I just mean, in the end, you know, what seemed so obvious then doesn't seem so obvious now. It's just more classic like, oh, hindsight that. 2020 situation. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. always. But I yeah, mean, that was how we that's how it happened, though. They, they they were interested in the curse, I think, for a minute or at least maybe some of the people in the office where I know Vanessa liked what we were doing um, in the loved ones and stuff. And, and so it just became one of those things where maybe we wore Mike down or somebody, whoever it was that was not into it. I think maybe Toby in the end, yeah. Toby was from Red Scare was working at Fat then. We wore him down and, and, and then they gave us a, a, a deal and we did two records with them. Yeah. I was, I mean, yo, I was working at a record store at the time. Uh, Keep Your Heart came out and I remember getting a promo copy of that because Fat would always send, you know, like the packages to the, all the record stores and stuff like that, especially if they sell punk and whatever. And I remember getting the promo yeah. of, uh, of keep your heart and just playing the shit out of it. It's, it was just, you know, I'd played in the store all the time or whatever. It sold a lot of copies of, the, of that CD. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and then I remember seeing you guys for the first time at the mm-hmm. 580 house in Pasadena that, Oh, Tara, Tara's, Tara's um, house. Yes. Place. Yeah. Yeah. I Amazing. Was at, I was at that show and that's funny enough. That's the same, uh, that house is where Touche Amore played our first show as well. It is? Yeah, we played our first show there. Well, amazing. That's so cool. I yeah. loved playing. That was, that was, we played, I think, two gigs there. One of them was um, when we were about to go to Japan. I don't know. Maybe it was one. I don't remember exactly. Yeah. Um, again, but, it was foggy. We would, we would drink tequila like in the van right before we played. I mean, it was nuts. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that house, uh, for people listening, was like, couldn't have been located like Pasadena is a it's a it's a pretty you know uppity sort of like upper middle class <laughs> town but this house happened to be placed on a street that was full of businesses that closed at like five o'clock so there's right. actually it was just one random house between a bunch of businesses so it was the best case scenario Yep, for a house yep. gig because the, there's no one there to shut it down. So like mm-hmm. there was a ton of shows that happened. Uh, I went there pretty often, but the only shows that I, that I have a real 
you know, like strong memory of were honestly like us playing there a couple times and then seeing you guys play there because I was so excited because I was a fan of the band and that was like the coolest first introduction to seeing you live is like in a house, you know? Yeah, that was fun. That was fun. We um we did all kinds of fun things around then. I mean it's it's again, it's one of those like it was a hard time uh emotionally, you know, for me. So it's it's funny to hear from someone that I respect and admire to say like, Oh, we went to see your band then. Cause I'm like, Oh, I wonder what it was really like, because I just remember, um, struggling so much with, with having lost my mom and, and being in, in a really debilitated emotional state for a lot of those years and, and using a lot of substances to try to get through it. Um, and so it's funny, like those shows, I, I, like I can remember little snippets of them or little moments, but also the thing with, with punk music for me is it's such a rush. It's such like a, you're building up for this explosive thing. Um, and then in the moment while it's happening, it's really hard to kind of even know it's so chaotic and fast and stuff that it's hard for me to like go back there and remember even I, I get little moments of memory, but so much of it is a blur. It's wild. Yeah, yeah, no, I feel, I, don't, I mean, also, I've, as someone who's also lost their mother while being in a band and, and things like that, like, to cancer. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. yeah I, I knew I, that, yeah. I, I, I can, you know, I, I I never did the substance thing, but I, you know, I, I've, I, I would, I have foggy memories of shows just because of the, the grief of it, of it all. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Right, like, right. Get, grief get, is a cloud that you live in for a long time. For a and, real long time, yeah. Um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry you, I'm sorry you had to go through that as well. It's, uh, I'm sorry you did too, man, especially touring, you know, you're, you're in some ways it's a, it's a help. And in other ways, it's really disconcerting to kind of, you know, to have things happening that you'd like to talk to your mom about. And Mm -hmm. yeah, it it was weird. It was really a weird thing. I mean, um, yeah, Yeah. I, I knew you went through that and I remember sort of hearing about that but not knowing you and wanting to kind of reach out. There's been lots of instances in, in, um, in life where, uh, for instance, like we had a publicist or I had a publicist actually, um, on my first solo record and found out that the publicist had lost their mom just some months prior. And I sent them her keep your heart as a gift. Like, Hey, look, I don't know if this is weird, but like I made a whole record about this. And if there's any solace you can find in it and so i've done that for a couple different people that i felt comfortable enough but but you were someone that i heard about it and i was like man i should send them that you know and it's funny that you found that record of your own volition yeah you know that's it's kind of wild absolutely and you know now kind of knowing the side because i actually i i wasn't i didn't know i mean when you're there's as you know as i'm sure you know from making music as long as you have um listeners don't always take the same things from the songs you know what i'm saying like they have their own interpretations of Mm -hmm. it so now after having this conversation and me being a fan of that record i'm i'm gonna put it on as soon as this is over i definitely still have it i definitely still have it on vinyl back there and i'm sure it's going to be a completely different experience i'm excited to do that Um, yeah there's some relationship struggles in there too you know in terms of the topics of the of the record but but the beating heart of that that whole concept of keep your heart was um the drummer of the bouncing souls michael had lost his mom to cancer some years prior so we really were close about that and um spider the bass player in kid and uh loved ones in kid dynamite he he had run into michael's sister and was like yeah you know we dave we couldn't play a show or whatever he ran into michael's sister and was like hey uh 
Dave's mom's dying or whatever. And she said, well, listen, I just went through that. Tell him to keep his heart. And make sure you, he, he hears that I said, keep your heart. And Spider came to me with that. And I was like, wow, that's really sweet of her to say. I don't know her well. And that's what a sweet thing to send, sweet message to send. Yeah. And Spider was like, what about a title? Could that be a title for a song? And I was like, what about the right. title of the record? So that's how that whole thing came about, was someone just trying to do a kindness for someone who was losing their parent who had been through it. And that's where that title actually came from. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, just to bounce, just to sort of bounce off the kindness factor. Um, it's not necessarily the same, but it's with those, those moments of kindness or those moments of thoughtfulness are whether they're intentional or not can be so helpful. Like um, I, I wrote a essay uh, for a site of some years back about how, so I, my mom, passed while we were literally on stage playing at the fest uh in Gainesville <sighs> and so I found out after but like when we came off stage or whatever I got the call kind of a thing right and right. um so I was like you know going through it in my own way and everything like that and there was a point where like I was making phone calls I was talking to my to my to my girl and and all this sort of stuff and then I was like, I, I know, like, I have no appetite, but I know I need to eat something. And so I walked to the gas station near the hotel just to get like some sort of a snack or something. And that band from Toronto or from Canada, Chicks Dig It, was was yeah. was in the gas station just like being Canadians, you know. And uh, <laughs> and I forgot that I was wearing a bunch of like stupid makeup because we like it was a Halloween show, so we like you know whatever. I, right. I, I probably looked like a crazy person because I had like a full <laughs> like, and I probably had been crying, so like shit smeared everywhere. Um, right. And uh, so they looked at me and they were like, "Hey, did you play the fest?" And I was like, "Yeah." And it's like I'm not gonna dump on these guys what I'm going through, but their their absolute total sweetness of just being like, "Oh, where'd you play? How was your show?" Just like wanted to talk about. That yeah. took, took me out of the moment because of right. just how how warm and accepting and sweet they were to this guy who looks pr like I was out of my mind. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, yeah. Of course. Yeah. And so so what I wrote wow. about is just like the 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 kind like how random kindness from from strangers can really help in a moment that they don't even realize. You know what I'm saying? It's true. It's true. I mean, the older you get, the more you hopefully soften to that. And, you know, being an East Coaster, being a construction worker, being a roadie for hardcore bands, being in hardcore bands, you certainly are not always... My, my The calluses that I had to develop, I guess, over the years to deal with all that um, can sometimes block that kindness. And I think I'm in a constant quest as an, as an older person to try to stay at the beating heart of that kindness. You know, I also think like the last years politically and all that stuff, like to see what unkindness and, and callousness and um, watching people's hearts wither and stuff like to see what that really looks like as an adult. It's what, what I've been trying to run from um, for all of my thirties after doing my twenties in that sort of, again, East coast punk, hardcore construction you know these are calloused people often and trying to fight you know it's everything's like your dukes are always up and i don't want that i don't you know that's not the way i want to live it's not what i want for my children it's not what i want for my sisters and and the world really so i, th I think i've been trying to to some degree like grow out of that and work through that for for the last i don't know like 15 years or something 
short. Yeah, it's it's uh, it really is. It's like and as you get older, it is just becomes more and more apparent. Like even you just even just seeing someone, especially like someone in our age group, like be rude to someone for no reason, especially if it's like <sighs> on, online or something. I'm always just like, what are you gaining yeah. from that? Like, I like, know just, I, I made I actually made a tweet yesterday clowning around on this machine gun Kelly and I I'm going to delete it when we get off this call because it was unkind. It wasn't nice. It was I thought it was funny. Yeah. And I'm thinking about it now and going, ah, why did I do that? Like, I'm sure their yeah. journey's their journey. What do I care? It's just it's that it's that default rut that you can fall into to try to be witty or silly or. Yeah. And, but it, well, I poke somebody in the eye, you know, if you can yeah. avoid it. Yeah, but at the same time, Machine and Kelly, it's all right to punch up sometimes. You're punching up. I, I, I feel it. I feel <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, but why punch? I, you know, I, no, like, I'm I mean, in the you. end. I get, I get what you're saying. I'm with you. I think he's mad corny, but what do I? What does it matter? I'm a 44-year-old man with my own set of circumstances. I don't need to talk about that clown. Yeah, no, I don't I care, you know. I feel it's, it. It's, but, but you're right. This kindness is clutch, man, especially because you just don't know what your fellow human beings going through and... and uh, you know, that's it's such a missing part of American life so often is that kindness uh, component. Um, I want to ask uh, uh, before, obviously, we, we get to the end here. Obviously, you, we have a whole you have a I mean, just in general, you're extremely prolific with your music. When you look like I've known who you are as a as a songwriter and all that sort of stuff. But when I was like doing the research, I'm like, holy shit, this man has a lot <laughs> a lot of music like so yeah. much music between all the bands you've done and then of course your solo career is like bigger than anything that than any of the other bands you know like the amount of stuff that you have put out um yeah but and i wanted to actually ask was your first time doing a solo thing if i read correctly was it that revival tour was that your first time actually doing a solo tour yeah, well uh, let's see it was right around the sea i think i had been uh, confirmed on it when another offer came in f to do a Canadian tour. So it was right around 2010. The, the very first one that Chuck did, he invited me to do a week and a half of it, but I was busy with the loved ones. And I remember seeing it. I went to the revival tour the first year in 08, and it was Chuck, Tim Barry, Ben from Lucero. And I can't remember who the fourth person was. In well, Philadelphia, uh, but maybe I, Austin Lucas or something like that. I feel like yeah, Austin Lucas. I don't Lucas remember, was, yeah. but I went to the Philly one and was so taken with it because I had been touring heavily with the loved ones on the second record in 08. And I, I loved it so much that I drove to Asbury Park the next day and saw another show. I think Frank Turner joined that day and was like, whoa, and met Frank there. I, or no, I had met Frank prior, but we talked a bit and he was like, man, I feel like we're at the center of the zeitgeist right now. And I thought, really? That's it. Maybe you're right, you know, but, um, but in any case, I remember wishing, oh, I should have said yes to Chuck, um, in, in, for that 08 run, you know, cause he had asked me to do some, I was, oh no, I'm in a rock and roll band. I'm going to do that for a while before I do anything solo. And so I've, my theory ever since then is never say no when Chuck asks, you know? <laughs> and so I try, I've tried to say yes to anything he's ever asked, uh, regarding the revival tour ever since. And it was really wonderful because right when I put out resolutions the following year in 11 he asked me to do the european one at the end of 2011 that was brian fallon dan andriano chuck and i and so that was like essentially he and brian and dan gave me a, an audience just kind of hand plucked it and was like here you go that i've been playing to and growing off of ever since then right there on that first solo record 
Well, I was going to say, um, had that had your first solo record come out when it that, had just come oh, out in just January out. Okay. of eleven. Yeah, so it was like a ten months later. It gave people plenty of time to to get acquainted if they liked to, if they were interested, and then and then that tour in particular really. Um, and put what me a, on stage with those guys, you know. And and truthfully, it might have even been for, the, uh, again, hindsight. Who knows? Who knows what what it could? But like that era, when looking at it, it's like that record came out on paper and plastic. I saw, which was like a very of that era sort of mm-hmm. label to have been putting out a record like that. You know what I'm saying? Like yes. it, it seemed right. like the uh-huh. it seemed like maybe it was the right time in the end because you mentioned how you've been kind of building off of it. Um, yeah. Had you performed solo much before? Because I know on that first Loved Ones EP, there's a, an acoustic song. Um, Drastic is an acoustic song. But like, yeah, had you no, performed much? No. Not really. No. It was, it was, what happened in 08, though, was the crash. And so while the Loved Ones, Loved Ones put out Build and Burn, we did the tour with the Hold Steady. Um, we, we did a tour with Flogging Molly. Like, we really were doing well. And, um, but then some interband just discomfort and you know a lot of drinking touring hard all that kinds of stuff all those things sort of uh coalesced and we said let's take a little rest and all the while through the loved ones years i was running a construction company with a a friend of mine just to keep money coming in because when you start a band you're not making any dough and so the crash in oh i guess it was in 08 that really led to 09 08 09 that whole you know all the banks folding and whatever, all that stuff led to a downturn in touring and then a significant downturn in, in residential construction and light commercial, which we were in. And so I had kind of no, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And at that point got offered some shows playing solo and realized like, Oh, I'm making more just with an acoustic guitar than I would as a carpenter and certainly more than I would in my band. And so it was sort of born of necessity. I was like, all right, I'll do this Canadian tour and I'll make, you know, some, some money to throw at the mortgage at the time. And, and it just sort of accelerated the plan to make a solo record. I always intended to do like loved. I always thought like, um, Jenny Lewis for a while. She was, I think she was doing uh, solo as well as Rilo Kylie, and I thought that would be a nice thing. Or, or um, Rhett Miller does ninety sevens, and I thought it would be cool to have both. And it just became pretty clear on that first revival tour, like just go with this. Um, in fact, all the guys on that tour, Dan, Chuck, and Brian, all kind of like privately pulled me aside, like, look. Don't let it be me that breaks up the band, but I think you should just do this. You're going to be happier and better off just doing play with an acoustic guitar and see see where it takes you. So that's kind of how it happened. And I kind of once I got two records in and brought my brother on, my brother Tim at that point then had been leaving college and um, didn't know what he was going to do. And he became my songwriting partner and and really like my touring partner, he became this, this, um, other half that I didn't know existed. And I just have never kind of looked back, like at least not for any long period of time. We did some celebration, keep your heart shows in 2016, but generally speaking, we've been just, we started a label in, in, in pandemic and we've just been writing and recording and really embracing that, um, side of things. And it's been, it's been, it's been incredible, you know, to, to be able to make this hobby into the work that I do and the way that I feed my family, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. 
it's beautiful too because you are pulling from probably a lot of the stuff you grew up on sonically. You know what I'm saying? Stuff mm-hmm. that you it's definitely enjoyed throughout all your other bands, no doubt. But like, um, you're kind of going back in a lot of ways, and you get to involve family, which is obviously important yep. to you. Like you're with someone who you know. Again, not to not to just bring up the loss of your mom, but like the fact that you two have that together sort of a situation is it's like a bond that is, you know, like people you'll meet tons of people in in your life that have gone through loss of parents and things like that. But like to have your own brother involved in it and like get to make music with him. And like, also, I mean, how cool, I mean, you, you mentioned the age difference. You say it was 15 years. It's 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. So he was, he was 11 when our mom died. So talk about getting short changed in, in terms of not getting time with your parent. And so that again, to be able to knit this together and have a bond that's so close, even with that big of a gap is incredible. And, and we do feel like we're honoring her memory, you know, we, that, that she would be proud and, and, you know, she would be so pleased anytime you know it's silly like every time we release a record you you do try to keep track of if it does it chart on billboard or whatever the little sure. metrics are like yeah. that stuff's not super important but it is important to people like yeah. your your aunts and your whatever and uh she would be just so tickled by some of those little funny uh you know notches or something or or whatever you know those those little um hills that we've climbed she'd be so pleased to see us play in philadelphia or london or wherever like we you know sometimes can do pretty good and and i think she'd be really proud and so to have that with my brother and and our sisters are all kind of in the mix too and you know it's 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 great it's it's um you know and so so it's it kind of dovetails into your your question that you end the podcast with yeah, um, which uh, which we can actually uh, hop right to. But I did before before we actually t- wrap it up real quick. Uh, yeah, sure, I want to sure, actually sure. just uh, with with the Blood Harmony record that. So I saw it was it came out in 2021, but you guys just put out a deluxe version of it. Is it, is it just like you had extra songs kind of a thing? What? Uh, yeah, what, we what recorded. Was the oh, it was, you know, it, it, we recorded 13 songs. And then for whatever reason, we were like, we have to put out 10 song records. We're not putting out records that are longer than that anymore. Sure. Now, why? I still can't exactly tell you other than there's, <laughs> there's this... Um, you can convince yourself of anything. I, I, yo, you, yeah, right. I, I 100% get it. I mean, you can be like, yo, attention spans aren't always there. You know, right. like, like everyone loves like a 30, 30 to 35 minute record because you can start it right over. Like it's easy yes, to digest. Yes. It's all you that. It's yeah, all that. I yeah. get it. I get it. So, but we had these other three songs I really, really liked. And uh, so we put that out and it's sort of just this new way of doing things, I guess that, um, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to like die on some old hill of like, here's how it used to be. And I'm like, Hey, if, if people like streaming and they're going to jump on board a record by virtue of us releasing more songs six months later, and that like keeps the fire lit. I love writing songs. I love recording them. I love putting them out. And if now with Clearly. the label, we own it and can like sort of make our living that way or part of our living, like great. It we'll just keep putting songs out. And it was funny. <laughs> it was funny. I was talking about this the other day. Rise Against was in town, and and Tim McElrath was like, "Do you put out a song every?" <laughs> 
like every minute he goes well, every time I turn on my release radar on Spotify it's your face he goes what are you doing to stay up there and I was like I'm just making up songs and putting them out man and he goes it's not like they lose quality either. Like it was, that's such a sweet thing to say. Totally. Because sometimes you can just like put out any old thing. He's like, they're good. Yeah. Like he was shocked. Oh, that's <laughs> and awesome. And I said, well, thanks, man. I think, you know, are we putting out too many? He goes, no. He goes, if they're good, they're put good. them out. But yeah. So it, it was a funny thing to hear from him because I think of them, you know, they're obviously such a massive, like right. this, you know, they're ahead of everybody's release radar. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it's just sort of like us toying with how we're going to release things and, you know, moving forward tomorrow, we, we start, um, we're going to put our newsletter out and, and announce Tim, my brother's debut solo record. Um, and so that's going to come in the beginning of next year. So the first song comes out this week, actually. Oh, how exciting. Um, yeah, oh, that's so awesome. it's really fun. Like the family business, the family uh, songwriting, blood harmony thing continues to grow even this week. So it's really, really fun, really exciting. Oh, that's awesome. All right. When was the first time you felt like you were doing the thing you've been working so hard towards? Well, my goal is to try to get that feeling as often as possible. And I felt that even on this last tour we did, I, we were playing, we sat in a, a Japanese garden, Anderson Japanese uh, Gardens, I think is the name of the venue, in Rockford, Illinois. And everyone was in lawn chairs and this beautiful setting. And we were sat with acoustic guitars and pianos and just singing songs in a really relaxed way. And I looked around thinking, man, this is so joyful. And I remember seeing songwriters like Patty Griffin or Sean Colvin or whoever do things like this when I was in The Loved Ones and thought, man, I would love to be able to get to do that as well. How do you do that? And so all these years later, the other day, I actually was doing it. You know, we did it multiple times in multiple locations in the Midwest. And I just felt like, wow, I'm doing the thing that I set out to do. And, and I think, so to answer your question, like anytime, by, by going into the studio often and by writing songs often and having those go out into the world and give us um, some sense of purpose as well as help feed us. I mean, I, I feel that all the time, thankfully, because we just keep our nose to the grindstone and we keep working as if this is our job because it is. And then we get that purpose out of just doing the work, just doing the songwriting, just recording. And then, you know, the, the live thing is great. It's sort of worn off a little bit. I don't love traveling away from my family as much as I used to. But when we balance it and have enough of the other creative energy involved, then I, I feel like we're actually sharing the music with people instead of, oh, I got to go like grind it out on tour. I feel like I get to share this with you. Thank you for being here. And thank you for, for giving us this opportunity to, to sing for you. It's a wonderful answer. Thank you so, thank you so much, Dave. This, is, this has been one of my favorite interviews uh, for the show. So I appreciate oh, thanks, that. Thanks, man. I, I, I love it. And I, I was so excited to do it and and i admire you i think your band is so fucking awesome and uh you know so to get to do it has been a treat for me so thanks so much for having me man ah oh, you've made my day appreciate it <laughs> likewise Bars, 
And that is our show. Thank you so much today for coming on and thank you for listening. Reminder, there's a bonus episode available right now where Dave answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. Get access to that and so much more by heading over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. All right, take care and I will see you next week. Be good. Bye-bye.